What is going on? Welcome to another edition of Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd. My co-host is Canucks insider Thomas Strands, also covering the team at The Athletic. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota all-star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. Of course, we're coming to you live from the Kintec studio, Kintec Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. And, Jancer, uh, I got I found myself at a bit of a loss this morning, thinking about the show. There was so much ground covered yesterday by Jim Rutherford at the, uh, at the press conference. So much ground covered on our show, and... The thing that kind of happened is not the debate. Jim Rutherford took out of our hands not the debate about what they should do, but he did kind of take out of the debate of what they will do, right? Like, we have a pretty good idea of what we're going to see. Not the specifics, but the broad strokes of what we're going to see, uh, I would say, in the coming months. Beyond that, maybe even for the Canucks. Yeah, but the devil's in the details. The devil is in the details. and But it, it does feel like now we're very much in... A little bit of limbo. Like, we're in a waiting period to see what those details, in fact, turn out to be. You know what I mean? Uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't react so quickly to that. So, the Canucks <laughs> are on the ice for practice. They're wearing uh-huh. a 29 decal in honor of Gino Ojic. Spoke with Pavel, by the way, yesterday, and we'll have a story on his recollections of his best friend later today up at The Athletics, so watch for that. I'm really curious to see what commentary we get out of the Vancouver Canucks locker room. Now, my guess is, is that the players will have zero appetite to keep the frou-frou going, right? Like at some point, everyone's just exhausted. So yeah, you say the right thing. This is what happens when you're not winning, right? Like da-da-da-da, it's on us in this room to get it going right, right? Like that, I think we're going to get rote stuff out of the locker room. Um, devastated that I can't be there, by the way. This is like the perfect day to take a bunch of guys aside and see and see what's what. But so I think we'll get very little from the Canucks room. Boudreaux, though. Yes. I'm very curious about. You know. Look, we beat up the team pretty hard yesterday. I did anyway. <laughs> um, so I want to sort of take today and and do some sober reflection and then I'll overreact to the Andre Kuzmenko reports from <laughs> Elliot Friedman and Rick Dollywell. But, you know, I don't believe in this club's direction. I don't believe in the probability that the plan Jim Rutherford laid out, the retooling plan that Jim Rutherford laid out yesterday will succeed. I believe, I believe it's doomed. Don't confuse that lack of confidence in the plan necessarily with a lack of confidence in Rutherford himself. The reputation's beyond uh, reproach. The record speaks for itself. But man, I think they have picked the lead, like probabilistically speaking, the retool for this team, considering the money invested in the likes of Miller and, and all of Reckman Larson, considering what I see, like I see a d- downward trajectory here. And I've been saying this all season. I think there's a good chance, a likelihood, that this is the best team this club ever ices around Elias Pettersson in his prime. And that's devastating. And all of that said, you know, could the Canucks land a couple right moves and be in the playoff mix next season? Sure. But that's not some like great success right the 
the problem with this plan is that it sort of limits your ceiling to being like the 14th best team. Okay. I'm not going to do this entire rant today, <laughs> but I, I just just want to say, like, I hope I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong and that they can pull it off. There is a path to pulling it off. I think it's an incredibly narrow one. I think it's illogical to pursue that path, but I hope they can pull it off. I hope Jim Rutherford can strike gold repeatedly the way he did in Pittsburgh. I'm just fading the possibility of that. Like, I think it's remote that trying to or that continuing with this club's trademark. I actually think they've filed with CPO, like an IP trademark, um, <laughs> that this club's habitual desperation to be in the mix every year is going to work. Like, at some point, you can't keep defying gravity. At some point, you just got to fall. Yeah, and, I mean, as Jim Rutherford said towards the end of the press conference, like, he's up for a challenge, and, man, is it a challenge here? And it does feel just like he is choosing to create an even bigger challenge, a, a much harder degree of difficulty than some other potential paths forward. As you say, that doesn't mean it's impossible. That doesn't mean there's no path forward whatsoever, but it's about setting yourself up to have the best chance of success. And I think that's that, that's the way I would describe it in my perspective uh, as somebody who also does not agree with the, the retool as opposed to rebuild decision. And I was trying to think about it this morning because, look, I would say by nature, I'm a pretty optimistic guy. Like, I, I, I try to see the bright side of things. I want this team to be successful. I want them to be a, le a legitimate <laughs> contender. So I'm trying to kind of wrap my head around it. Okay, what does that path to success look like? And, you know, that part of that is trying to identify potential targets that they could be after and all of that. We can get into that later. And I, and I was just, as I was thinking about it, and I've seen some people react along the lines of, well, they can't rebuild because you'd be sacrificing Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes, and they're too good. They're too good for you to initiate that full-scale rebuild. And I still, and I've made this point a lot on the show, I still have no problem, no problem whatsoever with the idea of Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes are going to be our cornerstone pieces, and we're going to try to put a Stanley Cup contending team around them. No problem whatsoever with that, because I agree. Those guys are elite talents. We're seeing it from Elias Pettersson. Quinn Hughes, you know, the where where he ultimately fits in the hierarchy of NHL defensemen, maybe a little bit more up for debate, but I still believe in the talent there. The problem is you need more elite, high-end, whatever catchphrase you want to put on it, you need more of that around them. Maybe not somebody just as good as Elias Pettersson, but really close, right? You need other elite talent around them. And when I think about all of the different ways you can go about acquiring elite talent in the NHL, I think the if I had to distill it to one issue I have with the vision that Jim Rutherford laid out, it's that they're not giving themselves the maximum opportunities. They are limiting their opportunities to go out and acquire elite talent. And if you're not doing that, right, if you don't have at least, uh, and not that there's any easy guaranteed way to go out and get an elite talent, no, short all, of drafting first overall no, this but, year. But over, but even drafting first overall, like people, all, I don't know why people love to bring up like there's no guarantees. Like there's guarantees in hockey, no matter what you yeah. do. But I mean, yeah, sure. Landing first overall pretty much guarantees this year. you a pretty good player. This year, for sure. No, but any, any year you're getting Mostly. a pretty good player. I mean, what are we, like last not good player, Yakupov? I'm trying to think. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, but I mean, for the most part, you're getting a pretty good player. And and again, like, it's not like you had to take Neil, Neil Yakupov. Yeah. You know, like, there's good players in that draft class. You can pick Morgan Riley. You cannot, you know, whiff on the pick. 
that's part of the responsibility. But that's that's the problem for me. Is just where is the, where are those other elite talents coming from? Right. If you're not targeting draft capital, if you're not even necessarily targeting like a guy who's showing a lot of potential in his draft plus one year, but who hasn't cracked the NHL yet. It's hard for me to figure where that next wave of elite talent is going to come from. And is, is the plan that it's going to be, you know, Elias Pettersson and JT Miller's your second best forward when you're challenging for the Stanley Cup in a couple of years? Like, I don't think that's going to well, get sorry, it done. And, and not just JT Miller, 31-year-old JT yeah. Miller. Right? Like, that's that's the problem. You've got a ticking clock on JT Miller. Like, first of all, is JT Miller an elite player is an open question, right? He's had two elite seasons in Vancouver in terms of, like, two-way impact overall value and two decidedly non-elite seasons in Vancouver. So what JT Miller are you getting year to year? Like, this was one of the concerns that I – or we talked about at length when the traders re-sign conversation was raging 12 months ago was, like – well, and especially in the summer once I sort of crunched the numbers. Like, JT Miller's a volatile player. He's a high-end player, but year to year, like, 2019-20 – he wasn't a 99-point guy. He probably would have crested at something like 85 to 90 in and around that range if the season had played out without the pause, without the interruption from COVID. Mm-hmm. But his two-way impact was so high-end that season that that was like a bona fide elite season, almost four, worth almost four wins by game score value added. The next year, though, the the shortened season, the COVID-shortened season, Miller was like, what, 35 points or something? Like 40 points? Like he was 0.8 points per game, far closer to his career norms. And the two-way impact was like outright bad. Then last year, we all know what happened. He was incredible. And then this year, he's been like, fine. Honestly, he's been, he's been, his profile this year looks like a power play specialist, like a middle six power play specialist. Now, I think he's a better player than that, specific, particularly if he's on the wing. But, like, what what are you getting from 30-year-old JT Miller next year? Like, I don't know. He's he's up and down. Meanwhile, the Cup contenders have four or five of these guys. You know, honestly, they have four or five of these guys. It's not just McKinnon, it's Randon. Mm-hmm. It's not just Stamkos, it's Kucherov. And Brain Point. And Brain Point. <laughs> not too bad. I mean... And that's that's the conversation. So anyway, hopefully the Canucks can pull this off, but they're giving themselves too few bullets, in my opinion. That's that's what I'm talking about about probability here, right? Retooling is a tightrope. Rebuilding is a highway. Which path is safer and faster? <laughs> like you know, and and that's really the thing. Like rebuilding is also faster because you know how are you going to land elite players? Like how. How are you going to add more elite players more quickly, for example, than the Anaheim Ducks, who have 10 picks in the first three rounds over the next two years, plus guys like Minchukov and and Zellweger who are going to hit the league next season? Like, how are you going to do it? How how do you outpace? Like, it's not just the teams in front of you you're trying to run down. You also have to stay ahead of the teams pursuing this probabilistic team building structure, the, the proper rebuild. That are lingering in the back in your rearview mirror. Objects may be closer than you appear, even if the Senators weren't to the Maple Leafs. So, you know, as I've been sort of stewing on this and trying to be more reasoned and measured, which, you know, I'm going to fail at. Like, you, <laughs> you mentioned that you're you got to play to your strengths, buddy. <laughs> no, no, but you know what? Like, 
I know I play one on the radio, but temperamentally, temperamentally, I'm not a firebrand necessarily. Like, I want to be fair. I want to be, like, I'm happy to mix it up. I think it's fun to mix it up. Mm. I enjoy it. But in terms of my writing style and my coverage, like, it tends to be more, the way I think is more down the middle. Even if, you know, my takes can be a little, can run a little hot, a little spicy. I just genuinely don't see the path here. So anyway, this brings us to, before hold we on, start. Hold okay. on, I want to I read this. Uh, it was texted and then it also tweeted at me. And it says, uh, what if they retool 70% of the roster while doing it? They get, uh, they retool three out of three right-handed defensemen. Who cares what they call it? And I agree that sometimes we get, and this is something I've said on the show before. Sorry, what, what do you mean retool three right-handed defensemen? Like, what are, like, you, what are you talking turn, about? Turning them over, like new new ones. That's what he means. Hold but, on. But, oh, no, 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 no. I, want to, I want to address this. It's ludicrous. I agree that Silly. we can get bogged down in the semantics of retool and rebuild. And if Jim Rutherford had said, we're not rebuilding, we're retooling, but then outlined the actual moves that were, we're going to acquire lots of draft capital, and, we're, this, and this is the timeline we're looking at, and we're willing to move lots of different core players to do that. Well, he I did, would be, he I did would, say he'd he did move say, core players. Right, but you know what I mean, right? Like, if he had called it a retool, but then the actual bullet points of the plan had been more along the lines of what I'm talking about, I wouldn't be complaining that he used the word retool. It's not just the label. Like, the label has special resonance in Vancouver because of the history of the term in Jim Benning, but it's also the actual, well, we're going to go, you know, under 26. That's very concerning, right? If he's saying, If he was saying, like, we'd be interested in players, you know, under 21, under 22, Okay, we're having a different conversation. If he's saying we're interested in acquiring draft capital, we're having a different conversation. If he was, we might have to explore trading Andre Kuzmenko, even though we really like him. We're having a different conversation. So it's not just about the word. Again, I understand why people get upset about the word retool, but for me, it's not so much about what label they put on it. It's what do the steps they're outlining and suggesting taking amount to? That's where the concern comes in for me. Well, and I'd go, I'd go a little bit further in that, it's not about what you call it, and it's not necessarily about age even. It's about overall accumulation. Sure. It's about overall volume. And it's about having more of it going forward that will pay off at, at the right time frame than your opponents, right? Like, if you are pushing asset value, because assets can be used for yourself or monetized for future gains. Mm -hmm. And are those future gains guaranteed? No. But is your current performance guaranteed? No. Right? Like, are the Canucks guaranteed to make the playoffs because they didn't trade Andre Kuzmenko and instead extended him? Absolutely not. Like, there's no guarantees in life. There's no guarantees in hockey. There's no guarantees is one of the most facile, simple-minded things you can say about anything when it comes to hockey. But for some reason, it's always used about the rebuild. Only rebuilds are not guaranteed. Everything else in hockey is guaranteed. This team's guaranteed to make the playoffs if they don't trade whatever guy it's it's insanity anyway with <laughs> i actually lost my train of thought because i got fired up about <laughs> well, you're talking about the, the overall looking at it not just oh, even based on right. age but value so so here's like here's one thing that i think this organization has done that i'm really interested in and that i think looks sharp on them that i think is impressive to this point so we've talked a little bit about the undervalued players that they've managed to mine, some of the good hockey moves, the mm -hmm. moves that we've liked. And, you know, 
in Abbotsford, for example, right? I think we're seeing a really interesting approach. Like Hoaglander should have spent a year in Abbotsford. Should he have spent this year in Abbotsford? No, this team's better with him on it. But should he have spent his first season if, you know, he was able to cross a border without quarantining, if the Canucks hadn't gutted their team for budget reasons? Like, if this had been a healthy organization, would Hoaglander have spent his age 21 season in the American League just, like, eating competition for breakfast? He probably would have. Would he have been a better player for it in terms of some of the details in his game, in terms of some of the defensive awareness, the puck management? I think he probably would be. I don't hate that they're sort of doing it retroactively. I don't hate... Pod Colson being down there. I, I bet, too, we're going to see spike performances from them like over the course of a month or two offensively uh, if they stay down there. Uh, I'm curious to see what they do in the playoffs. I think it's really useful to have like a, a wave of prospects learning together and figuring out figuring it out and having success in the American League. That's sort of uh, one of the hidden factors of the Tampa Bay model, right? Like most of those guys... Yeah. Uh, who went on to be big players uh, for the Lightning, you know, the, your Palat-Johnson class anyway, like the Kalorn, your supporting yep. cast. They were Even John Cooper. They were part of that, you know, epic Norfolk team that won like 30 games in a row at one point, right? So I like that part of it. I like the investment that we've seen in the player development, right? I like that Ryan Johnson stayed involved. Uh, Higgins brought in and given more support, the Samuelson hire, the way that they've deployed the Sedine twins as coaches, the possibility that we might see, you know, a Sergei Gonchar's names being linked to the team. So more sort of high end hockey people like we've seen the impact that an Adam Oates can, has had on Bo Horvat this year. Like if you can recreate that internally and allow those competitive advantages to proliferate that's something that can help you mm -hmm. be the most efficient of 32 that's something that can maybe create the source of cheap labor that this team doesn't currently have in the pipeline and so if there's one thing that i'd sort of single out and be like i like that investment like i like what they've done there right like the amateur the amateur department like i i didn't love their first draft class like her like not trending well elias Pettersson is um, but you know, I, I, I thought they didn't make enough changes there given that department's, um, track record since Jed Brackett's departure, um, you know, pro scouting, uh, they've done some interesting work there, but no, no, no big hits yet. Plus I, I, I would say they got fooled a little bit by some of their own players, which, which worries me like JT Miller clearly wasn't signed as a winger. And yet that's a, that's a big bet at this point. It doesn't. You know, it's not they're not offering a generous cash out <laughs> for that for that particular bet placed. So like mixed the contract work, I think it's been bad. The big picture strategy, I think it's been bad. The the Abbotsford thing, the player development model that looks promising to me. So if you're building something that could be interesting and could be useful to you, what's the best thing to do? Like this is what was so frustrating about the Benning era. Their best asset is drafting, but they're trading all their yeah. picks, right? If this team's going to invest heavily in player development and utilize that as like a route out of this mess, I'll buy that. Like, I'll buy that. But I want to see them then land a ton of players, right? Like, continuing to sign those high-scoring uh, WHL guys that they've, you know, the, the, the Waters, Nielsen, um, Schmeeman class of player. Like, keep doing that. That makes sense. You might you might fi eventually find a guy who can can play NHL games for you. If you're gonna keep, um, you know, f mining Europe and actually landing some NCAA free agents, like that's gonna be a crucial. This, this is one of the problems coming out of yesterday too, right? Like, 
you don't want to be in the news for the wrong reason going into going into some of those meetings where you're competing with other teams mm. right but if the Canucks aren't going to be good they're going to have minutes to offer which helps right opportunity to burn deals when when you're playing out the string like there there are some advantages that should occur to the Canucks so keep doing that keep keep rolling the dice on the Niels Amon class like that was a really interesting piece of work signing those undrafted unsigned guys when they're sort of right of first refusal with their current teams expired Niels Amon and and Philip Janssen those guys Johansson Johansson those guys have both tracked well like that that's interesting so there's there's something going on there that feels deliberate and thoughtful and like it could maybe be the piece of you know something this organization does successfully so feed the machine go yeah, get go get players um, like like why are why are you looking at 24 to 27 year old NHLers when what this organization seems to be most interested in doing right is the player development go get 18 to 22 year olds Go get, or, or, you know, or 24-year-olds up to the Niels Amon age and try to feed them into the system and level them up. Try to, like, find something you're good at and lean into that as sort of a driver of your success and then just avoid the really bad contractual mistakes along the way and you're, and you're starting to cook with oil. But how does this investment pay off if there's not material to work with? Like, go, go feed the machine. And I think that's something, you know, the focus on player development is something, I don't think just the Canucks, but I like I feel like it's an idea that other teams come up with too, right? Like, how are you going to avoid this kind of natural cycle? Well, we're going to be really good at player development. And that, look, player development, really important. And I, and I agree with you that I like what they're doing. That advantage doesn't go away if you choose to rebuild. If anything, it increases it, right? It's not as if you only get the advantage of having a really good player development staff if you choose the, the quote-unquote retool path. And I would even say you could point that, you know, another thing that uh, that organizations will point to, right? Okay, you're not going to rebuild. How are you going to get better? Look, pro scouting. We're going to win trades, right? We're going to bet on our ability to identify talent. Maybe you can do that. Really hard. Really hard to win trades at that clip. But maybe you can do that. But again, that advantage doesn't go away. You can still You can still reap the rewards of a really strong pro scouting department while you're rebuilding. That can be a tremendous asset to you. You also don't, like, you want to win trades... But if you want to make trades and have that be a linchpin of your strategy, you have to make fair trades. You know, like you're fans, people listening, you and I, we don't have trade calls with other NHL general managers, obviously. But you probably play in a fantasy league and you probably play with that one guy who's always overvaluing Brian Robinson or like, mm-hmm. you know, he's like Dak Prescott's a top QB. And like ends up being right in the playoffs, but it's like no, there's no way he's. I'm valuing Dak Prescott as a top five QB. Stop it, right? Does that guy get as many deals done? Nope. You have to make fair trades, so you know it's a. You tough... have to be willing to bend a little bit. Well, you you just you have to have the reputation to m- solve your problems. You have to have that. Gra- this is one of th- the things that Jim Rutherford has, and Jim Rutherford's won his fair share of trades, more than his fair share of trades, but. There's also, like, you know, you can't go in every trade trying to knife your trading partner. That's not strategy. That is a short-term boost that's going to get cut down if you do it more than once. Like, that's a card you play maybe when you're in your cup window. Well, and I know uh, our own Dan Riccio has has reported that, you know, he heard maybe they were asking for a first for Connor Garland last summer. 
maybe there's a little bit of overvaluing going on there. Maybe you could have gotten it, but now you're in a position where his value has diminished quite a bit. Sure. And and also, yeah, I mean, the the asks that I've heard more about with Gar- Garland were more in that like young player range. Sure. You know, like we're more um, young guy with with some money on their deal, like one of those second contracts that hasn't quite worked out at three million. Those are those are the names that I've mostly heard or mostly heard linked with Connor Garland uh, in the lead up to the draft and such. So anyway, I know we have to go to break, but fundamentally, I don't see a path forward that isn't bottoming out. If the Canucks are going to sell something like a retool to a market that has absolutely no time for that based on the history, based on the scar tissue, based on a variety of external factors that Rutherford has inherited, not created himself, right? If they're going to sell that, I still think showing just a bare-bones amount of fiscal responsibility in their contractual dealings and beginning to have some signs of success, something to point to, and something logical, like something that is coherent logically is going to help. Otherwise, it's going to be things like, well, we want to turn this around in a hurry and we're more likely to sign Kuzmenko than Horvat. And it's like, wait, that breaks my brain. Horvat is better in absolutely every facet than that guy. How do you lose Horvat and get better? How do you add more money on the wings and get better? If, if that's how the next few months play out before the deadline, I think you're going to have a lot of fans shaking their heads and feeling like hope has abandoned Canada's West Coast. Uh, We'll take a break. Mike Kelly from NHL Network will join us next. We'll let his reaction to what Jim Rutherford had to say and his take on the current state of the Canucks. More Canucks talk coming up on Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650 with Jamie Dodd and Thomas Strance live from the Kintech studio. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line, the smart alternative. Visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Vikings dad texts in, I don't care about semantics, I care about action. And what this huge progressive new leadership group has shown so far is very little. They're going to show me in the next handful of weeks whether or not I should bother following the team for the rest of the season. That is from Vikingstad in the inbox. You can keep your texts coming in right now. However, we are joined on the phone line uh, from NHL Network and Sport Logic, Mike Kelly. Mike, thanks very much for doing this. How are you? Hey, happy guys uh, to do what I'm doing well. Yourself? Oh, we're doing very well. It's uh, an eventful week, as it ever is. Here I'm not in doing Vancouver. well. Don't speak <laughs> yeah, for me, right. Jamie. Trance is not doing well, but I'm, I'm doing hanging just fine. on by a thread, Mike. No, I'm fine. Um, how's it going, bud? Good. Everything's good. I know uh, I've been like the Canucks are not uh, regional news really <laughs> no. anymore. It's kind of national and international news, probably more often than they would like. But uh, yeah, everybody watched that press conference yesterday, and and you know I listen to you guys and and listen today and and, and read your stuff too, Drancer, as you know. And um, I think overall you kind of summed it up pretty well. I agree <laughs> with most of it. And uh, oh no, yeah, it's it's. You know, I have a lot of friends in Vancouver still. Like, I was born there. I, I finished high school there. Mm-hmm. Um, I know what the fans are like there. And, you know, they're smart and they're passionate. And I know the, the market gets knocked sometimes for being, you know, too negative and, and all that too. But I've been there when the team was playing well. 
And uh, it's incredibly passionately positive when that happens at the same time, right? It can be for sure. Now, Mike, I know you're an analytics guy and a different breed of analytics guy than me because you're really focused on microstats as a general rule as opposed to, you know, me who's a little more old school with, with my shot metrics. Now, I'm curious to hear from your perspective how much impact a coaching change could have for this team and to what extent Bruce Boudreaux has been a problem, if at all, for this club in terms of their results this season? Um, a coaching change in general can have a large impact. I think we saw that when Bruce Boudreaux took over the team. So, you know, I go back to the Travis Green years, and, and I, I thought Travis Green was a fine coach. Um, you know, the way that he assessed that team and wanted to get that team to play offensively you know, he believed that they're probably one of their best attributes offensively was to, to work the puck low and cycle the puck and, and score goals that way. And they scored a lot of goals that way. Um, you know, a couple of years back when he was coaching there, they were among the league leaders in, in creating offense off the cycle at five on five. In order to do that effectively, you know, oftentimes they needed three guys, three forwards down low. Um, they get caught in odd man situations. They gave up a lot off the rush. They didn't produce a lot off the rush either. So that's what his kind of idea I think was in terms of how to get this team to ultimately score more than it allows and win games. And Bruce Boudreau came in, took a team that, you know, arguably had the least impressive transition game. So up the ice, quick attack, limiting chances back quick the other way and, and turned that around quickly. And Bruce Boudreau is an offensive coach. So he got them playing quick through the neutral zone. Um, they started winning games. They started creating a lot off the rush, playing a very different style. And it worked for, a while right we all we all know the the peak when he took over there and what happened um so a coaching change can have a big impact right away with the same group of guys can you sustain it uh over long periods of time is it that kind of new voice bump um this year the canucks aren't playing that way although you know if you want to start categorizing the list of issues i think that exist uh i'd put the coach well below a lot of other things so um yeah, to answer your question, yeah, coaching change can have a big impact. Yeah, so, I mean, as you mentioned there, Mike, one of the things that distinguished the Canucks after Boudreaux took over last season was their ability to attack off the rush. And, you know, from some of the stats I've seen, that's been lacking this year. And on that point, but just in general, what's been different for the Canucks in terms of their actual underlying play versus, you know, as you said, the heights of the Boudreaux bump last year? Yeah, well, their neutral zone play last year was good. They, they weren't turning pucks over, which is part of creating it off the rush and, and um, also not allowing it coming back either. So um, this year, like here's the scary thing. This year, you know, the Canucks aren't good defensively. We all know that. You guys have talked about that ad nauseum. Um, 26th in the league in expected goals against in the model that I use. They're 30th in goals against. Uh, and, they're, and they're pretty poor in kind of every type of chance creation you can allow. Offensively, they're top 10 in goals, but they're 25th in expected goals. So, you know, you can argue, sure, a team can have, you know, players that can exceed an expected goal model and, and kind of outscore the chances they generate to some degree. To do it at, you know, three quarters of a goal a game, uh, I don't think it's sustainable. So what happens when this team down the stretch, maybe they're not scoring quite as much as they have been, compounded by the fact that they don't defend well and the goaltending has been probably inconsistent to be nice this year. So, the uh, yeah, the transition offense that, that kind of peaked when he got there, 
has disappeared. They're 25th in chances off the rush. They're 26th in chances against. They have a negative 12 goal differential off the rush, which is 28th. So it's not a strength of their game at all. Mike, one of the great debates that's played out here in Vancouver, and not just between fans and between different members of the media, but to to some degree between Bruce Boudreau and Jim Rutherford, is whether the problems with the Canucks, many of which you just detailed there, are more related to the structure or lack thereof and systems they're playing with, or the personnel that Bruce Boudreau has to work with. Where would you put most of the uh, of the blame on? On the latter. Um, and I guess we're going to find out if reports are true that Rick Tockett will be taking over at some point in the near future. Uh, I think it's unfortunate what's happened to Bruce in, in Vancouver and, and how this thing's played out from really the start of the season to now with basically everyone saying that this other coach is going to come in and take over. Um, you know, he, he's a, beyond being a great person, an incredibly successful coach. Uh, I think it's an unfortunate situation, but we'll find out, right? And, you know, my, my thoughts with the Canucks are they had an opportunity and have had opportunities over the last couple of off-seasons to make decisions that would put them in a better place than they're in today, and they didn't do it. Um, and it's easy to say in hindsight, but some of this stuff, you know, I know Thomas was kind of on it as it's happening. And, and, you know, I said publicly a couple of years ago even um, in a segment, you look at the Canucks and an opportunity to revamp that defense. Um like one guy that I mentioned, what I said was they need to address the ability to get the puck out of their zone clean and get it up the ice and, and attack quick and mm-hmm. talking about that whole transition stuff, right? And I identified a couple defensemen. Like these are guys you could look to target maybe. And you get Vince Dunn in Seattle. We know what he's gone on to do there. They're not yep. getting him. Um, Mike Riley, who's a UFA, you know, minors with Boston this year on a crowded blue line. Third pair maybe can help, but you're not going to move the needle a ton. The, the other guy that I mentioned was Jake Wallman who was in St. Louis at the time on a crowded blue line. Mm. But he's playing top pair in Detroit right now with Mo Sider, and he's been fantastic. And he's making just over a million bucks a year. So that's an option. Or you go and trade for Oliver, Oliver ekman Larson, and you've got, <laughs> you know, whatever, six, five, four or five years, whatever's left on an $8 million deal. Like those are the decisions that, and that wasn't Jim Rutherford, but those are the decisions that have put this team in a really difficult spot. Mike, Andre Kuzmenko, to my eyes, based on the underlying data, he doesn't look like a passenger by any means playing alongside Elias Pettersson, and yet, to my to my eyes anyway, this club, considering where they're at and the pro- prohibitive cost of extending him, has to proceed with extreme caution, particularly uh, along the wings. W- what are you seeing from him? What's the data finding in his game? What's his value, do you think? On, on his next deal? Uh, that's a good question. I, I haven't looked at, uh, you know, contract value with him specifically. Um, he's, he's, he, I agree with you. I don't think he's a passenger either. He's a good player. He's, he's really solid protecting the puck and possessing it in the offensive zone, which, which helps you work that cycle game. He gets to rebounds and, um, you know, he can beat defenders one-on-one and open ice. Um, so I, I think he's a, a very solid player. Um, what he's going to cost them uh, that's a good question. I haven't looked into that, um, but you know, like you said, given I, I don't, I don't know that he'll be able to sustain the level of offense that he, he's put up to this point. Given where the Canucks are, uh, my thoughts on where they're at versus I think what their thoughts might be, what your thoughts are, Thomas. I'm probably more aligned with you, um, and I, I would be not saying trade him for sure, 
see what the market is for them. Um, you know, we know the Canucks have talked about wanting to get some younger players, not necessarily just load up on draft picks, but there's younger players every year that just don't have a spot on a really good team um, that have good underlying numbers that in a bigger role and opportunity might, you know, be able to do well. Wallman's an example I used. Um, this is just off the top of my head, but like, I, I really like Drew O'Connor in, in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh's trying to win a Stanley cup. Mm-hmm. Um, th- those are the kind of things I'd be thinking about anyways. Mike, JT Miller was so good last year at center, and yet this year there's been very little happening when he's been on the ice in the middle. Um, I think the Canucks have four goals for when he's been on the ice, uh, absent one of Pedersen or Horvat at five-on-five. Is JT Miller a solution at center in the event that the Canucks do, as expected, walk away from Bo Horvat here? I think it's a big ask. Um, yeah. On a, if you're viewing the Canucks as okay, hey, we're a contending team now, we're whatever one, two, three years down the road, and, and JT Miller's playing that role for us, I think it's probably a big ask. Um, so I, I think you know, preferably he's on the wing, but that might be a reality given where things are headed. And you know, the Horvat thing is interesting to me because it. I think you could probably simplify it and say, well, you could have signed him instead of Miller. And maybe that's true. Maybe it isn't. We don't know what Bo Horvat wants to do. Um, But if you're a Canucks fan and you're thinking, hey, we're not as close as I think the team believes we are to contending. I think we need a rebuild, not a retool. And there's a lot of fans that feel that way. Extending Bo Horvat is probably not what you would want to do. Like This is a guy who's going to be 28 this spring who is having a monster career year looking for seven, eight years on his next contract. Mm-hmm. You probably don't want to be the team that has to pay that, right? No. Well, and so this is where I'm running into, and maybe you can explain it to me, Mike, because I'm struggling to wrap my head around this. And and genuinely, this isn't hot takes, sports talk, radio stuff. This is like genuinely, can you explain this one to me? If the organization wants to be good next year, make the playoffs next year, I don't understand how you'd prioritize Kuzmenko over over Horvat. And if you want to look long-term, I don't understand why you'd sign either. It feels to me like the most likely outcome, though, is this club signing Kuzmenko and not Horvat. How does that square, or am I missing something? Yeah, I hear you. Um, Maybe they don't have a choice. Like, for all we know, maybe Bo Horvat doesn't intend to sign in Vancouver. Yeah. Um. At the same time, like you're, now you're competing with the market for Bo Horvat. So he's got he's on pace for I think 57 goals this year. Let's say yeah. we see some regression. He scores 47, 50 even. Um, how many times have we seen guys pop off at you know in their late 20s and get that monster deal? Like, I don't think it's in the sh- you know, short term. Fine, sure it is, but the Canucks to me are not one or even two years away from being a playoff team, let alone contending in the playoffs. So you can go that way. Like I, I look at Horvat, this is a big time regression candidate. He, he scored 30 last year and that's great. That was his career high at 31 goals. Um, but you know, you break down his game. So he's got 30 this year in 43 games. Uh, there's two players in the league that have exceeded their expected goals more. Paige Thompson, who's got the hardest shot in the NHL. So you can explain some of that. Jared McCann, who plays in Seattle where everything goes in. So that's just how it works <laughs> over there. Um, 
And then it's Horvat. And you break it down a little farther, a third of Horvat's goals have been deflections. So he scored 10 goals on deflections, on 24 deflection shots on net. So he's shooting 40-plus percent on deflections. League average is typically around 17%. He's got more deflection goals midway this season than he's had in the last three years combined. So that's a third of his goal total. I don't think that's going to roll over. Uh, in fact, I know it won't. And I remember going through this with Gabriel Landeskog a few years ago when he led the league in deflection goals. He really worked on it, and it was great, and he had great success. Um, and you can build on it, but not to this degree. So Horvat's a great player. He's a great leader by all accounts, captain, like a guy you want in your team, no question. Um, but there's going to be a huge price to pay because someone out there is going to say, hey, this is a 40-goal guy, and he's a captain, and look at this. This is great, and there's $9-plus million a year for seven years. Um, 40? It's 40? Be... Guy's going for 55 uh, at least, 50. Mike. 60. <laughs> Honestly, he's on pace for six. Like, he's on pace to flirt with 60. I don't think he gets there, but I, I also know. wouldn't put it past him. No, it, it could happen. I mean, he, he could definitely hit 50 this year. Um, these things happen and he's having a great year. Like I don't mean to minimize what he's accomplishing here, but when you're talking about projecting players out and contracts and long-term deals and tens and tens and tens of millions of dollars, um, those are the kind of exercises that you, you need to go through. Right. So, um, look for me in a perfect world, if you could rewrite history, you sign Horvat, you don't sign Miller. You figure out what you want to do with Kuzmenko. We're past that point now. Um, so I, I'm kind of, again, more along the lines of what Thomas is thinking, which is you build to the future. Like, the future is not anytime soon. Yeah, I, the, the way I've kind of put it is I think the logic that points towards trading Bo Horvat is pretty inescapable. It's just that same logic also points you towards a rebuild. And I'm not sure how much sense it makes to do one uh, and not the other. Now, a few more minutes here with Mike Kelly of NHL Network and uh, Sport Logic on Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650. I think one of the areas where there's probably very broad agreement, you know, even from people who, whether you're on the retool side or the rebuild side, is that Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes are are players worth building around. And if that's not the case, then all of a sudden we're having a very, very different conversation here in Vancouver. In your eyes, Mike, are, are Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes, can they be championship core pieces for the Vancouver Canucks in the future? Yeah, I've, I have no question. And, you know, whatever most people think about Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes, I probably think higher. Like, I, I'm such big fans of those guys. Let's not forget Thatcher Demko. Like, I know his year's been miserable this year before he was hurt. Um, but we've seen what he's done before that. Like, can he just be a, a really good starting goalie? I, I think he can. Um, so now you've got your, your center, your D, and your goalie. And you can absolutely build around that. Like, Quinn Hughes, to me... Um, I have this debate with people at the NHL network a lot, which is funny because it's usually me, the numbers guy, them, the player. Um, and I, t I tend to lean more to like Quinn Hughes is a real top end uh, defenseman, you know, rank them wherever you want, but, but top 15 for sure. Um, and their view is more, you know, he's a guy that needs a lot of help mm. and you can't be a number one defenseman. If you need help, I do think he needs help. Like I, I think he needs to play with a partner. We saw when Tanev was there, how great that was. Mm -hmm. um, I think he needs something like that. I don't know that he can carry everything on his own. It's just not who he is, and that's fine. Elias Pettersson, for for how great he is offensively, he's just as good away from the puck. And like, if you could build a centerman to kind of do the things that he does, I think that's fantastic. I'm such a fan. I think you can absolutely win with him as your as your number one center. Um, 
So you've got those two pieces. Yeah, you don't need to go, you know, Coyotes, Blackhawks, and, and scorch the earth. Um, but at the same time, like, the rolling it over next year, next year, next year is what's got this team in trouble over the last several years. So I think there needs to be at least some medium view as opposed to short term. And I know they're, they're hamstrung now by the cap and, and other things, but that's why they are. So maybe now's the time you have to say, okay, not next year, not the year, like build for sustained playoff success is what you ultimately want to do. Right. Not just to hopefully get in next year. Cause anything could happen. Um, that's the way I look at it. Mike, you're the best. We need to have you <laughs> yeah, on more. That's, that's, I, don't, I don't know how if how often you have listened to the show or talked to Drancer, but his absolute pet, biggest pet peeve is people saying anything could happen in the playoffs. So you struck a chord with him right there. Although Mike. although it's now become nothing's guaranteed about a rebuild. Like anything is guaranteed in the most variable sport in, in like in the pro sporting galaxy. Like you're not guaranteed to make the playoffs any given year. Vegas missed last year. Like duh. Drives yep. me drives me nuts. Yeah, Florida's probably going to miss this year. There you go. Hey now. Let's just hey now. Hey now. Nothing is not not guaranteed. So. <laughs> Twisting the <laughs> knife a little a bit there. I love it. Hey Mike, we really appreciate the insight and your perspective uh, on everything going on with the Canucks. Hopefully, we can talk again soon. Anytime, guys. Like I said, that's where I was born, and uh, I wish nothing but the best for that organization and the fans. I want them to do well. So. Fingers crossed. Appreciate it, Mike. Uh, we'll talk soon. Great that takes, is, my guy. Thanks uh, for joining us. That is Mike Kelly from NHL Network and Sport Logic, as fire. you said. Absolute fire One, takes. Great, great follow on Twitter. Anytime you see his segments on NHL Network, always fantastic he's work. A, he's a lovely guy. The combination of the the analytics, microstats focus with the knowledge of everything going on around the league and the ability to break down the tape and everything is yeah. uh, is really fantastic. The c- combines in the way in the way you'd like. Uh, the analytics, like the, it, it's underpinned by something real, but it's also based on common sense. You can't ignore common sense. That's true. Well, you'd think not. <laughs> you shouldn't. Let's say that. You shouldn't ignore common sense. Well, common sense is not common. It's actually mislabeled. Very good. To be totally honest. Um, And, you know, I, I wanted to ask him about Pedersen and Hughes because that is such a... It's like a fundamental cornerstone to the conversation still here, the assumption that those guys can be elite top-of-the-lineup players on a Stanley Cup winning team. And that's something I've believed since they've come into the organization. And I still believe, but I always find it helpful to to kind of check that with other people, make sure that I'm still on the right track with that. And, you know, you as you heard from Mike, he is extremely, extremely high on those two pieces. And on the one hand, when I hear that, it's... It's reassuring to me that, okay, at least the Canucks still have those cornerstones, those foundational pieces, right, to build around. It's reassuring. It's also frustrating, right, because they have the things that are theoretically the hardest to get. The rest of it should be able to fall in place in a relatively straightforward manner around them, and yet it's just so difficult time after time after time to actually flesh out the contender around those. It's... it should be purely reassuring that they have those players, but I find it to be both that and frustrating at the same time. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. I, the, I mean, look, it would be reassuring, and I would be speaking totally differently about retooling versus rebuilding if if they had cost certainty on both. But they don't. They have cost certainty on one. Yeah. And people spin this to be like, well, you have to choose between a rebuild and keeping Pedersen. And that's a false way to look at it. Like, the right thing 
keeping Pedersen, done the wrong way, so you have to throw in more chips into the center of the table when this club can't afford it, is still the wrong thing, right? Like, you can't base your decisions, even on the short term, on appealing to a player. He's either in on what you're going to do, or he's not. You either explain your vision and convince him, or you don't. You can't extend Andre Kuzmenko on some misnomer idea that Pedersen's going to make his decision based on a line mate. Like, you, you have to be confident in your ability to appeal to players, and if you're not, then you're just patching over what you know is a bigger problem anyway. So, you know, among all the bad arguments we get, that's another one. See, at least I I understand where that one's coming from. A place of deep, deep fear. Yes, yes. Deep fear at losing this phenomenally talented player, which is fair. I I get it. I understand it. I just don't think it's enough to change what you should do. I understand it. I just don't respect it. (laughs) There you go. I both understand and respect it, even though I disagree with the ultimate conclusion of it. Um People are raving about Mike Kelly in the They inbox. should be. He was Absolutely great. raving. That's that was awesome. Such a great interview. I'm becoming an immediate fan of Mike. And uh, and your uh, guy... Really quickly, we got a text into the inbox that said, Friedman has hinted a few times about Demko being available. How does that square? I've always said this. A Demko trade, if this club made it, signals a rebuild, whatever they decide to call it. To me, if you're dealing Demko you're doing it with the bottom of the standings in mind because he's the one guy, like at the end of the day, as good as Pedersen is, he can't single-handedly drag you to the playoffs. There's only one guy in this organization capable of that, and it's Thatcher Demko because of the importance of goaltending. To me, a Demko trade signals that this retool is more aggressive than what Rutherford outlined yesterday, and that's very possible. Uh, On that note, we're going to take a break. We will hear from Canucks head coach Bruce Boudreau on the other side. Lots more coming up as well. Keep your thoughts coming in. 650-650 to the Dunbar Lumber text line. It is Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Strands. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Your Kubota all-star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. And we are coming to you live from the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews, find your perfect fit at kintech.net. 650, 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. You continue to get your thoughts in. Um, so let's quickly hear from the Canucks room, and then I want to talk about Kuzmenko. Yeah, I think from what I uh, gather, uh, Bruce Boudreaux is the only one. Of, uh, Horvat and Besser also spoke after Canucks practice, but I don't believe that they addressed anything that Jim Rutherford said yesterday. Uh, but certainly I do want to hear from so, Chris Boudreaux. So, Hold on. Sorry. No, no, go ahead. Sorry. As I intimated, right, I thought, I mean, it speaks volumes that no one said anything. Right. It speaks volumes that everyone's just like head down, get through it, who cares? Anyway. All right. Let's hear from Canucks head coach Bruce Boudreaux after practice today. 
Well, you hope you can, you know, bottle that up and bring it into tomorrow's game, um, especially since we play, played Tampa this week as well. Uh, uh, you know, I think if we do that, we'll have some uh, good chance of success. What are the biggest differences in what you liked from the team? Well, we had four lines playing. I thought that's uh, when you get everybody going. I think it's a really good scenario, and I thought the third and fourth lines, uh, they all contributed, you know, because Michael got two assists playing on third line. Uh, uh, the fourth line checked and did a really good job, and the other guys there are, you know, our top six are our top six, and they played well. Stamkos is sitting on 499. I know. Last time against you. We talked a lot about OV's one-timer, which you know about. Where does Stamkos rate with that one time? It's right there. It's right there. I mean, I mean, he hasn't played as long as Ovi, but <clears throat> and he's had you know some injuries, but uh, uh, he's deadly from that spot. There's just no doubt about it. He's uh, him and Alex have owned that spot for ten years, and and you know it's coming, and sometimes you still can't stop it. He's very accurate with his shot. Bruce, you've got Garland at the net front on the first unit power play. Uh, just curious, Kuzmenko's had success. He's sort of proven that he can be that guy. What's the, what's the thinking? We've changed all three of them. We've had Kuzmenko, we've had Besser, we've had Garland. Um, and sometimes our power play's been getting a little stale as of late, so we try different things. That's the only reason. Uh, uh, there's probably a good chance if the first one or two aren't successful that somebody else will be in that spot. Can sometimes just his creativity and how he can get on pucks in a hurry help? We always talk about the down low guy having a presence, but Garland is so shifty and nifty and can score from sharp angles. And he, he doesn't mind going. He's not a big guy, but he doesn't mind going right to the front of the net. You know, and uh, um, you know, I've had many talks with Connor, and, and this is where he played in Phoenix, and, and this is where he played. Uh, uh, you know, in, in in his career, like I mean, was the net front because he could. Uh, get in there, and, and, and he's and he's got a great sense. Like if you notice how he scores his goals, like the last one, um, you know, in uh, uh, in Tampa uh, was like, and it's all these rebounds in front. Everything's in tight. I mean, so I mean, he's got a real good sense for that. Your players in the room often talk about how good they've become at shutting out the noise, Bruce, uh, regarding whatever's swirling around the team. How do you what? How do you shut out the noise on a personal level, Bruce? Just... Well, I don't read or watch anything. Just try to stay to myself and, you know, come to work and just do what I do and uh, just to, and go about my business. There you go. That is Canucks head coach Bruce Boudreaux asked kind of indirectly towards the end there about the noise in general around the team, uh, not directly about some of Jim Rutherford's comments yesterday. And Boudreaux says he doesn't read or watch anything. So there you go. Just goes about his business and comes to work. So. I've never seen a club confirm that they're talking to their current coaches' replacements. I know it was captioned with, we don't want to make the change, mm-hmm. and, and on and on, but that's like me saying, like, I don't want to eat that pizza. It's like, look at him. He wants to eat the pizza. <laughs> See, um, I would never say that because I know myself. <laughs> I would never even put up the front of saying, I don't want to eat that pizza. Sorry, me neither, but it's like... <laughs> It's like my wife, like, do you want to do dry January? <laughs> no. Why? Why would I ever do that? All right. Um, so, it can't be easy. And you know what? It's not easy. No, and look, I mean, 
I think Bruce Boudreau deserves a lot of credit for the entire season, how he's handled it in an extraordinarily difficult position. And yes, I understand he's not the only one in the Canucks organization in a difficult position. As Jim Rutherford said yesterday, I get that, but it's a really, really tough one. And he's the one who's out there in public the most talking about it, being asked questions about it. And this is another opportunity that, you know, he could have taken knowing where this is going, like we all seem to to fire back, to get some of his own shots out there if he wanted to, to, to have his own say in public, and once again, deciding not to do it, taking the option not to do it. The high road is the, like, PR guy, journalist hat off, PR guy hat on, okay? Mm-hmm. The high road is the only place to live if you're Bruce Boudreaux, right? Like, the more things spiral, if he's sticking to the high road, right, the better his position is. You see what I'm saying? If he gets down in the muck, if he begins a war of words, if he starts to, like, really deliberately and pointedly stand up for himself, which is tempting, I I would be tempted. I don't know that I'd have the restraint to avoid it. Mm -hmm. But what I'd, you know, the, the advice I'd give to a public figure in his situation is the high road's already been ceded to you, so all you have to do is stay on it, right? Like, you're probably not going to coach this team anymore. So what is your goal? Your goal is to get out of here with your reputation as close to intact as possible. And so motivate, coach, focus on that, tune out the noise. That's it. That's all you can do. High road, high road, high road. And and it sucks. He he's checkmated. It. It's yeah, it's just another reason why it's an extremely difficult position for him to be in, but at least on that side of things. I mean, I think there's I don't think Boudreaux is the problem. I think there's plenty of decisions he's made that are open to criticism, but at least on this front, I mean, I really, you couldn't ask for him to have handled it better given the situation uh, he finds himself in. I, I want to read a text and you'll be- Is sh- it the pizza text? No. Okay. I, what's the pizza? You read pizza, that one. The pizza text is from Marcus and Gibsons who says, uh, Yogi Berra famously said, can you cut my pizza into four slices? I can't eat eight tonight, which is very good. But anyways, I just wanted to pass that along. That is, made me laugh. That is a very, very good quote. All right. I want to read this text. In 2015, when Boston traded Dougie Hamilton, everyone thought Boston was going to step back and have a rebuild. Since then, they've kept retooling and drafting right, and they haven't missed a beat. Why can't the Canucks follow that model? Two quick things. One, Patrice Bergeron not walking through that door. Big one. Number two. Drafting right? We sure about this? They've hit on some key ones. Like here, the the I love the Boston Bruins draft success because it really cements how lucky you have to get to pull off the 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 rebuild on the floor, or retool on the fly. David Pasternak, twenty fifth overall, is probably the best draft pick of the last decade. To be totally like. We don't have we don't really have right now like a seventh round superstar. We don't have a Pavel Datsuk at the yeah. moment. What was Gaudreau's draft year? Fifth, fifth round. Yeah, yeah. But what was his? So I'm just. Does he still fall into the decade? Uh, probably, probably 2000, not. Probably 2013, 20, 2012. Yeah. yeah, in and around there. He's close. Yeah, he's close. But at the end of the day, like I don't know, 2011. So Gaudreau does no he's no out. longer counts. I think it's Pasternak, and I'd argue for Pasternak even with Gaudreau included. Just because Pasternak is such an alpha offensive catalyst. Like, we're talking about a 275-goal, 
266-point career guy whose two-way results are also through the roof and who runs Boston's elite power play. Like, runs it. It's him. So, anyway, they draft Pasternak the next year ahead of Barzell and Kyle Connor. They have three first-rounders, Saboral, DeBrusque, and Sinitian. Over Connor and Barzell, like, legit, with a chance to build a contemporary dynasty. Three strikes. Mm -hmm. Well, two strikes, anyway. DeBrusque is fine. Well, but DeBrusque, in comparison to Connor and Barzell, is a strike, is a miss. It's a huge miss. He's a good player. He's he's not a bust, but it's a miss. It's a miss. Then the next year, they get McAvoy 14. That's, like, up there, too. Home run. uh, Home run. Home run. And then the next year... Uro Vakanen, who's like a fine bit player for the Ducks. Next two picks, Josh Norris, Robert Thomas. Yikes. Yikes. Then the next one, uh, they trade. Then they pick a guy named John Beecher in 2019, who's like tracking poorly as a 21-year-old in the A. Like, whatever, he's fine. Maybe he's something. I'm not saying it's nothing. It's just, you know, not, not a ton to write home about. Shane Pinto, Arthur Kylev, two of the next three picks. Okay? And then Fabian Lysel, whatever, too early to tell. So my point is, is like, did the Boston Bruins draft right or did they get massively historically lucky twice in three years and also have one of the great outlier centermen? A guy who like habitually exceeds gravity in terms of his consistency and and sort of ability to stand like hockey Tom Brady Bergeron's basically hockey Tom Brady so just keep that in mind like the strategy of like land stars in the mid first rounds that's not a strategy that's hope and what do we say about hope but also hope is not a plan yes but also it's not a strategy there you go sure whatever it's also not a plan Uh, but it's not a strategy but the other thing is like Boston to me, that's the exact example of what retooling looks like in a context where it makes sense. You're a really good team with a really with a legitimate kind of Stanley Cup contention window, and you're making different moves to re, re you know rejig your roster, right? To more efficiently allocate resources on your roster. Like that's what retooling is. That's where it makes sense when you're in this Stanley Cup window, and you're like, ah, you know what? We like this player. This is a tough decision, but we got to move him out uh, to try to address a few things on our roster. Like, yeah. Okay, great. But that's not the position the Canucks find themselves in. If the Canucks were perennial Stanley Cup contenders, perennial, a perennial playoff team, always expected to go deep, then we're having a completely different conversation, obviously. And then the other thing I'll say about the Dougie Hamilton trade is for buy low, sell high to work, you got to be willing to sell high at some point. Like Dougie Hamilton was a 21-year-old, really high pedigree defenseman, right shot defenseman when the Boston Bruins traded him, 21-22. That's a really tough trade to make. And yes, I know the Canucks are staring in the face of trading Bo Horvat, who's in the middle of a career year. You could say that's a really tough trade to make as well, but it feels like they're only doing that because they've been boxed into a corner. We just haven't seen this organization kind of willingly, proactively look at a player and say, you know what, they're really good, we like them, but it makes sense for us to trade them. And I understand there's other issues with or maybe other issues with Dougie Hamilton that made Boston more uh, amenable to trading him. But my point is, that's an incredibly valuable asset that they were willing to step up and trade, and we just 
don't see the Canucks operate like that. I wish they'd be more willing to operate like that. I wish they'd be willing to take a paybook out of Boston's handbook on that, but I just I, I haven't seen the evidence of it. It's a really good point. It's a really good point. All right. Now, speaking of Andre Kuzmenko, right? It's the latest example of it. So, my primary concern with Andre Kuzmenko has nothing to do with Andre Kuzmenko. Okay? Which is unfortunate. But these are the sorts of choices that I think you have to be really clear-eyed about when you're as boxed, painted, into a corner as the Vancouver Canucks are. Right? This cap situation is crushing this team. And there's one area of the club where they have a legitimate surplus, and it's on the wings. And unfortunately, there's one position where big-moneyed players have literally zero trade value, no matter how good they are, basically. I mean, obviously, Kyle Connor has trade value. Yeah, but Miko Rantanen. Okay. <laughs> aside, from, aside from the top th- 25 scoring wingers in hockey, right? And and those players like Matthew Kachuk who bring a, a genuine other element. No scoring wingers have much trade value. Like it's a very short list. Yeah, the fall off. You have to be in that true elite category. You have to be a star to maintain it. You have to be a yeah. draw. So, in terms of Kuzmenko, right? He's really good. He's really fun to watch. He has chemistry with Elias Pettersson. I don't think he's a passenger. I think he should be at the net front basically every time they go out on the power play. I actually would be curious to see what he could do on the half wall. I think he's got enough skill to work there. And that wrist shot with time and space, like I'd love to see them find some like pop plays, like him and JT Miller swap mm. so that you can get him skating into one of those wrist shots. It seems like that wrist shot, if he hits the net, pretty close to impossible to stop like he can go high on you he can go low on you it's hard to read when he when he has a couple beats to get that wrist shot off like a lot of them we've seen have been partial changes where he's the last guy on the ice so he gets the puck up high and is sort of coming down on his downhill side from the bench side Mm -hmm. like that's a really lethal weapon I feel like he scored like three goals exactly like that so could you manufacture five on four situations for him to shoot like that I'd love to see it I think it would work All of this is to say I'm a big fan. Love his game. And yet, this team, since Rutherford took over, and really it's since June, June of this past year, has committed. And none of these are inherited deals. This is all decisions made by this front office. So usually when we talk about the Canucks cap situation and and asset management and like all those other things, we're talking about mostly what Rutherford inherited and a little bit about some of the decisions that have compounded the situation. But this is all Rutherford. Brock Besser, 6.6 times 3. Now, I guess I should note that he inherited a brutal yes. set so of leverage there. It is. It's his name on the contract, as we covered at length. But it was difficult to see. He inherited the dynamic negative. that pushed him into that contract. Okay. To be fair. To be fair. But, Still. nonetheless, nonetheless, you have a decision to make there. Six, 6.66 for Brock Besser. Few weeks later, four point seven five for Ilya Mikheyev times four. Five weeks later, eight times seven for JT Miller. Right? We're up to twenty-one plus million 
in annual cap commitments with a combined level of commitment of 14 years. All deals done by the organization, even as, even as, like, maybe you could say in the Besser example, the, the, the market hadn't really softened on wingers yet, but by the time you're doing Mikheyev and Miller, you, you kind of know. We kind of mm. know. All of 21 million in annual cap commitments committed on the wings over, I mean, that was over a two month span prior to the season. And now, now, less than a year later, the team is, according to Rick Dollywell and Elliot Friedman, eyeing the prospect of an Andre Kuzmenko deal very seriously. Like, I'd expect this to get done. I don't understand it, but I'd expect it to get done at this point. Pierre Lebrun's reporting on the matter over at The Athletics suggests strongly that we're looking at six plus for Kuzmenko, and that number could go up depending on the length of the deal. Once that deal's done, we're going to be talking about then, assuming that Lebrun's handicapping of his overall value and what, what his team is looking for is correct and LeBron doesn't miss. We're looking at $27 million being added to the Canucks books on the wings, even as the process of the market reacting to winger values plummets, craters, is destroyed, nullified. That is a death knell. Like, that is an insurmountable problem. That is close to catastrophic in terms of this club's ability to improve quickly. When you when you add into it the lack of difference makers on defense, the atrophying value we're seeing out of Oliver Ekman Larson and Tyler Myers, Bo Horvat's probable departure, that is the sort of thing that kills you short and long term. And I can't figure out how it makes a lick of sense, particularly given what we've seen from your Linus Carlson's, your Jack Stadnikas even, your um, Niels Hoaglanders, your Vasily Pod Colson's. This club has one spot of young talent, like one place on the roster where you can count on like relatively talented still young, affordable pieces, being able to impact your NHL roster over the next two, three years, affordably. And it's the same spot where they're investing all their all their money. Now, I'm sure the argument is, well, Miller's a center. Miller will play center. Yeah, somebody just text that in. Doesn't Good J- luck with that. Doesn't JT Miller go to the middle if Bo leaves? That's probably the plan. No, I thought we wanted to see this team make the playoffs in short order because you're not making the playoffs with JT Miller at center. Guys played 200-plus minutes there. They've scored four goals. Like, I don't know what else to say about it. It's it's not going to work. And, and, and you can bring in Rick Tockett, and he can do the Miller at center thing. And you know what he's going to do? Abandon it. Because it doesn't work. He's not a center. Anyway, at some point, that is an intractable issue. Like, I can't get around it. I can love Kuzmenko's game, and I do. I can see the fit. I can understand the chemistry with Pedersen. I can even credit him as as a driver on that line, and I still see no way, no way, that that deal makes sense versus 
the return that he'd net at the deadline plus the $6 million in cap flexibility that he'd represent. Like, at the end of the day, you have to be an outrageously good offensive winger to be worth $6 million if you don't provide defensive value. You know, like, I, I, think, I think you're worth about $4 million if you're good in one zone. Mm. Like, if you're dominant in one zone, I think you're worth $4 million. Dominant in two, I think you're worth eight. Dominant in three, you're Connor McDavid and you're worth twelve. <laughs> like that's sort of a it's it's just a basic rule of thumb. Sure. Six million for an all offense winger in this economy? I I I can't see it. I don't think it makes sense from a win now perspective. I don't think it makes sense from a win later perspective. I don't think it makes sense. So of course the organization's and, probably gonna do it. And the clincher for me. And you laid this out in one of your pieces of The Athletic, and I hadn't really put the two together, but the prospect pool thing, right? And all of their best prospects, well, not all of their best, but most of their best prospects being on the wings. Uh, and that includes young players like Vasily Podkolzin and Niels Hoaglander. And you can always say, well, hey, look, you know, you trade from a position of strength, right? You can always make trades. You have value, and you move you move players to get the positions that you're lacking in your system. But you always see... If you're trying to trade a winger for a defenseman or a center, first of all, you're probably not doing it. If you do do it, you're going to take a massive hit on the overall value of the player, on the overall upside of the player, right? Like, you're not trading a second-line winger for a second-line center. That's not how it works. That It just doesn't happen. You, no. Maybe you get lucky, but as a general rule, that's not how the value lines up. So it's really, really hard to fill out your blue line and your strength down the middle by trading wingers to get those players. You're, you're just not going to get commensurate talent and upside back like I, I always go back to the the taylor hall adam larson trade right mm. it was one for one because taylor taylor hall was a winger and adam larson was a defender that's why it was one for one because those positions are valued dramatically differently and you're gonna oh. see a similar drop off at a there smaller there was another level. reason <laughs> yes there was another reason but but truly right it's it's as simple as it's as simple as Avoid the mistake, right? Avoid the mistake. Get the future. Stop digging. Speaking of centers and the need for centers, I want to uh, I want to take us through an exercise that I did before the show today on Cap Friendly, trying to identify some potential targets that uh, Patrick Alvin and Jim Rutherford could have in mind based on the criteria we heard from Jim Rutherford yesterday at his press conference. We'll read more of your texts as well. 650-650. Final segment of Canucks Talk coming up. Welcome back to Canucks Talk, final segment of the day here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Drance, live from the Kintech Studio. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative. Visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. So, uh, as we heard from Jim Rutherford, right, and this is this match reporting that you've done, that Jeff Merrick was doing over the weekend, not that they're not interested in draft picks at all, right? He mentioned, yeah, we would like to also acquire draft picks, but the the primary focus, as he laid it out, is uh, not necessarily on draft capital. It's more on young players, players who can help them right now, and he specifically references the ages of kind of under 25 or 26. 
which is pretty old to be called young in today's NHL, but there you go, under 25 or 26. And then, uh, you know, he also made some references to kind of players that maybe have played out their ELC or are on their ELC, but it's not working out that uh, the Canucks can bring in and level them up, so to speak, right? Put that player development department to use. So as I said, you know, off the top of the show or early in the show, pretty optimistic guy. So maybe, uh, not maybe, I don't agree with that direction. I would prefer for them to target draft capital or very high-end prospects if you can uh, in a potential Bo Horvat trade. But taking Rutherford's words at face value, I was trying to figure out, okay, who kind of fits that mold? Because we know the positions they're talking about, right? They're talking about center. They're talking about right shot defensemen when they're talking about those players. Not that they wouldn't necessarily be interested in other positions, but we can all know and we can all look at what the areas of need are for this team. So I go over to Cap Friendly and, you know, they have a great tool where you can sort by position and age and cap it and all that. Have you done this for both positions? I have done it for both positions. Ooh, okay, let's so, go. At center. All right, I get age between 22 and 25. So now some people say, well, but what if there was a 20-year-old? I would love that, but I'm just trying to do my best interpretation of the criteria that Jim Rutherford laid out yesterday. So between the ages of 22 and 25, playing center, cap it under $5 million for this year, right? So nobody who's signed a big contract, nobody who's really hit and become a core piece with whatever team they're on yet. 22-25, center, cap it of under $5 million. I'll sort by points from, from most to fewest points this year. The top two, completely out of consideration because it's Tage Thompson and Robert Thomas. Of course, they've both signed massive long-term extensions. They are core pieces with their team. They're not going anywhere. Beyond that, here's the here are the guys who are next up on the list, right? So between the ages of 22 and 25, under $5 million cap it for this year at center. Dylan Strom, Philip Edel, Jack Roslevic, Sam Steele, Morgan Frost, Michael Rasmussen, Blake Lazotte, Nick Waugh round out the top 10. Is there anyone there that you would look at and say, if that was the number one piece they got back for Bo Horvat, I would be satisfied? Obviously not counting the, the obvious ones. Well, Tate Thompson, Robert Thomas, they're out of, they're out of, out they're, of they're the, basically out of the in this list stuff. based on a technicality because their extensions haven't hit in yet. Right? No, I don't think so. Um, but I have a lot of time for a lot of players on the list. Like I like Nick Waugh a ton. I really like Blake. Lizotte. I like Nick Waugh a, a lot too. Nick Waugh is also like, he's 25. You yeah, know, yeah. Like what's his, what's his ultimate upside? No, I like Nick Waugh as like a third line center. Yeah. I, I think there's, there's, I'm not, I don't read that list to be like, look at all these bums who can't help you. Of course, there's good players on that list, right? And there's good players farther down the list as well. But it just kind of goes to illustrate the point I was making earlier where are you getting an elite talent from that genre of players, right? When you, when you filter for all of those, all of that criteria that I mentioned, are you going to find elite players that are, not just fit that criteria, but that are actually available, right? <laughs> that the other team would actually be willing to part with. And yeah, like, I, I know you're a big Blake Lazat guy. Yeah, I like Blake Lazat, but is he ever going to be a top six guy who moves the needle for a, for a Stanley Cup team? I'm not sure. Good organizational piece to have as part of a return for a player like Bo Horvat. No problem with it whatsoever. But again, that's why, like, all of those, you know, what what's the, the criticism that you hear about targeting draft capital, right? I was like, well, well you know, you're going to get a pick that's in the 20s. No, or, or sorry, or uh, or 
four or five years before those guys will help you. Yeah, that's better than never helping you, like a <laughs> no, replacement but a lot, level player. But it's not like it's not wrong that a lot of these players are going to come in and help you next year. But at the same time, would you rather have pick twenty five or any of the players that I just listed? It's pick twenty five oh, by a mile. It's pick twenty five, and it's not close. Okay, well, let's do the defenseman and see if we. But out of the defenseman, I actually think there are some more interesting names on the list. Now, it's the question again comes down to can you get them? But okay, so same criteria. Between the ages of 22 and 25. This is good. I like the, your research, by and the way. And this is this is specifically right shot defenseman. Okay. Cap hit of under 5 million, sorted by total points this year, which I know points is not everything for the defenseman, but you got to sort it somehow. Philip Ronick, number one. Noah Dobson, Sean Dersey, Kalen Addison, Evan Bouchard, Nils Lundqvist, Nick Perbix, our guy, uh, Marcus Bjork out of Columbus, Ethan Bear is number nine on the list. Uh, and then Timothy Lilgren from Toronto rounds out the top well, 10. So lots of players there Far, that are good. Yeah. Like, the the defense list I actually kind of like. It's the center list that greatly concerns me. And the, it, it, it does – not that I'm all of a sudden – well, and there there you go. That's the uh, that's the uh, the, stra- the strategy that they should be following. But I did find it was interesting how much of a difference in overall quality there is for the defenseman list versus the center list. Like, you might actually be able to find a long-term solution at on the right side of defense in a Bo Horvat trade, more, that, more so than I think you're going to be able to find uh, your long-term solution down the middle in your top six in a Bo Horvat trade. Sure. Sure, but I don't think – I don't, like – so read the list again. And let's go, and, yeah, and let's just go over whether or not those teams would part with them or even think about it. Yeah, Philip okay. Ronick. Maybe. That's a maybe. I don't That's think it's maybe. impossible. That's a maybe. Okay. Uh, Noah Dobson. No, no chance. Sean Dersey. Mm, I think there's a possibility. I, They've I, got a lot of guys on that right side. I, I don't think they'll, they'd do it, but they'd probably have to consider it. Yeah. Kalen Addison. Don't think so. No chance. They're, Zero. They're, 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 Zero chance. They're walking away from Dumba, right? So Correct. they need him in the lineup. Uh, Evan Bouchard. No. Zero chance. Niels Lundqvist. Zero. Not, I don't think I don't, I don't think, think it's zero, but I, it's pretty close. Yeah, it's like they just gave up a first round pick for him. I don't see it. I mean, I guess they'd look at it as trading a first round pick for Bo Horvat. He's he's crested in value. He's been a great find for them. Uh Nick Perbix. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they would trade I'm Nick Perbix. I'm in. <laughs> Let's Bring do me it. Perbix. They would trade Nick Perbix, yes. Uh Marcus Bjork, yes. They would trade Marcus Bjork. Sure. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Who? <laughs> Bjork. Uh, Ethan Bear. Not 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 relevant. Nope. Uh, and then Timothy Lilligren. Who? Yes. Zero percent. Zero percent. They would never trade him. No. No chance. For Bo Horvat? Are you kidding me? For, they don't. No. No chance. Are you serious? Yeah. No chance. People. That's like an instant hang up. Lol. No. Are you serious? Yeah, man. Come on. It's Bo Horvat. You gotta be willing to consider it, Timothy Lilligren. You know, you think, untouchable for Bo Horvat. There is no world in which that's a fair trade. Look, there's no chance they that might be Toronto's position. But no, like, no, come no. on, strip, there's no chance. While the iron's hot, flags fly forever. They're not winning anything without Timothy Lilligren. He's probably their best right-handed defenseman. Like. What are you talking about? <laughs> guys, guys, absolutely kill them. He's 23. He's signed for 1.4 this year and next. There's zero chance. And and 
honestly, like, replace any GM and ask, would you do Timothy Lilligren for a rental? If you were Toronto, you'd get 31 no's. So it's not just, like, truly no chance. All right. The value's way off. Uh you want to go farther down the list? Yep. So after Lilgren, it's Connor Timmins, who is kind of, you know, he has 10 points in 16 games. Then you've got Eric Chernak, John Marino, Dante Fabro, Fabro, Andrew Peak, Andrew Peak, excuse me. Uh, that takes you down to 15. So Peak and Roslovic both on this list, huh? Peak and Roslovic both on this list. Huh? They sure are. Mm, how interesting. What do you think? Any of the, like Marino, no, he's stepped up and played fantastic for New Jersey. They're not doing that. No, I don't think so. They're no. not doing that. Dante Fabro, yeah. I wonder about Severson. Yeah, Severson's a UFA though, and Severson's like twenty eight. Yeah, I mean, you ex- you extend him as part of the deal. I, like I can see the Canucks targeting Severson, but it's if they create cap space, they're targeting him on July first. That that's where it would make more sense to me. Yeah. Same with Matt Dumba, right? Like they're they're UFAs. Wow. You're going to trade Bo Horvat for a UFA who's older than Bo Horvat? Well, if I can get an extension, if I can talk to them about an extension beforehand, as part of the package. I mean, the guy I'm still interested in seeing how it plays out with in New Jersey's Jesper Bratt. There's got to be a fit between the Devils and the Canucks on something larger, like something bigger. Like think bigger than Bo Horvat. You got to be well, able to Quinn sign a, or the goalie. Yeah, this, somebody brought that up when we were talking about Demko I wonder if there's well. like a mega package. <laughs> Quinn Hughes and Thatcher Demko? Well, if you give Quinn Hughes and Thatcher Demko to New Jersey, first of all, they have like this, the Flying Hughes brothers adjacent to Manhattan. It's like legitimately a thing. And Demko makes them an immediate cup contender. I mean, what's what's the price you wouldn't be willing to pay for that if you're the Devils? Oh, yeah, like... I think the reason you always hear, and you hear this from Friedman as well, where like I don't think they want to do Hughes, but it's a possibility. To me, I always just mentally insert New Jersey as that possibility, right? Yeah. The team that could theoretically move heaven and earth to acquire Quinn Hughes, and it would make sense for them to do it, is the New Jersey Devils. There's one team that could plausibly get into the the ballpark of what Vancouver would need to make that deal. And they right? have the assets. And they have the assets. And they have the cap space. So... I'm not betting on it happening, and, but... And they have the relationship with Fitzgerald having been Rutherford's assistant general manager, right? Yeah, but, like, the... They're the only team to me that would make any any sense to go down that road of really thinking about what would that look like. But I agree with you. Like, I would call New Jersey and ask about it. What, what are you... What, what's it worth to you? You have a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to unite these three super-talented brothers on your roster. What What is it worth to you? It should be worth an awful lot. Are you willing to pay... To actually make it happen. Uh, This text comes in. And this is a player who was not on the list of centers I went through. But is a guy who's come up uh, on a... uh, I've seen his name come up quite a bit. Mac in North Van says, uh, Thomas, if the Preds could sign Bo Horvat after a trade, would you do a first Philip Tomasino and Dante Fabro for Bo? Would Horvat do that? What are your thoughts? Uh, Philip Tomasino is an interesting one. To me, he doesn't quite fit the criteria that... uh, Jim Rutherford laid out, right? He's 21. He'll turn 22 in the offseason. He had a pretty decent rookie year in the NHL last year. He's been in the AHL just under a point per game last year. I I like Tomasino. Like, a first plus Tomasino, that's a 
decent starting point for a Bo Horvat package. For me, I'm just not sure he kind of checks the boxes we heard from Jim Rutherford as a guy who you're projecting to like step in and play right away and play meaningful minutes for you next year. So it's interesting to me. And Fabro, hey, local oh, kid, man. I'm not sure how much he's moving the needle I think, at this point. I think, I think Tomasino, like, Tomasino to me would be a perfect target. If you're able to get... I like Tomasino a lot. If you're able to get a player like that, I think that's... Um, you know, a pretty interesting, like even, even me and my love of draft picks, I'd be like, that's really interesting. But I mean, isn't that an appropriate, he's been, a, he's been a point per game guy at the ages of tw- 19 and 21 in the AHL. Um, that's wild. Like and think was... about, think about all the excuses we make for Danila Klimovich, mm-hmm. which are deserved by the way. It's they're not excuses. They're good analysis. This guy's been like legitimately good there. And 32 points in 76 games is nothing to sniff at for a 20 year old in the NHL either. Uh, yeah, I look, that would be – yeah, I like that name a lot. Yeah, I like that. And, again, I, I've seen some people kind of say, well, like, he doesn't necessarily mean a 24-year-old. Could he mean, could he be talking about somebody like Philip Tomasino? Maybe, but I just think well, he would have would used a little bit of different language well, then. That would be that's, great. That, like, that's a possibility, like, and I would like that deal. I just – that's not what I interpreted from what he had to say yeah, I mean, I mean, maybe the model of what you're looking for is the Pacioretty deal, right, where you get a second – and a Nick Suzuki mm. quality prospect. Like maybe it's more in the Pacioretty Mark Stone mold than it is in the Pajo premium PPP. Package. I still want the PPP. I still think that's like the best thing the Canucks could go about and do. But if you can get a Tomasino quality guy, you know, that and some decent draft capital. That begins, to me, you still have that to pair begins, it with. Oh, like, Tomasino's course, not at the quality where it's like, hey, one for one, we're getting that prospect. You still need to wait it out with or, or legit Scott prospects or whatever. Or, or legit the, picks. The, the thing is, is you, you look at what a late first could be this year, and the names are just like outrageous. Also, and look, this is all purely and local. This is purely theoretical <laughs> like, with Nashville, like, but. Nashville's not guaranteed to be late in the first round. Nashville could be like pick 18. Totally. You know what I mean? Like, great. Yeah, I'll sign yeah. up for that. And and something weird could happen. You know, like there's some Russian defensemen who are really good who could fall. Right? Dragasevich could be there. Six foot two righty local kid. Don't hate that. No, not at all. Um, You know, you could see a Matthew Wood fall. You could see uh, an Andrew Crystal there and you get the second most skilled player in the draft. I mean, there's real. This is a loaded class, man. There's yeah. some really good names. At the, the this this the, team should make no less than two first round picks this year. Any less than that, to me, I think is cause for fans to be deeply frustrated. Unless, unless, you know, the Horvat package is Tomasino a second or whatever, and another good like B prospect or something like An- that. Uh, right? no, ideally, yeah. another draft pick. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. it's but you know Horvat. I mean. Yeah, it's not worth Timothy Horvath. Lilligren, but. Um, He's really not, though. I'm not wrong. The uh, the other name that I've seen come up in a, a recent trade, as people kind of pointing to as a potential model that a little bit fits uh, what Jim Rutherford had to say, is Kirby Doc, who, of course, was traded from Chicago to Montreal. And, you know, that's a, like, I, I see where they're coming from. That's a guy who you could kind of say, okay, didn't necessarily meet live up to expectations on his entry-level deal. He gets traded. He's having a better season in Montreal, and he's still a player with high upside. He's a recent third overall pick. That's all fair, but my question is, I mean, first of all, he was traded... Kirby Kirby Doc. He was traded for the 13th overall pick, so that's a really, really good asset that was used to acquire Kirby Doc. 
even now, with some of the development he's shown in Montreal, how much is Kirby Doc moving the needle for you long term? I'm not saying he's a bad player, but he's also not what people necessarily expected him to be at third overall. On a good team, he's going to be a middle six wing. Yeah. Nice piece. Yeah. Nice piece. He's had a really nice bounce back. The upside has come down a lot since he's been drafted. You know, uh, sorry. He could be, he could be, if he like absolutely hits, I think he could be a really good team's answer to Valerie Nichushkin. Like just an assertive physical winger guy. That's interesting. So that's that's an interesting path for him. You know what I'm saying? Like that's, that's the guy, lanky, annoying, sort of uh, disruptive as anything, right? Sort of think about like a good team's answer to Kalorn or... Or Nichushkin. Now, I would still say that Nichushkin is a middle six forward on a really, really good team, but he's obviously a first-line caliber sure. player. But the other thing I would say is, look, I have, again, no problem whatsoever with targeting, like, whoever the next Kirby Doc is and trying to acquire no, that no, player. But, you, but the, you only have one, the only, they have one piece that can get them that, and it's Bo Horvat. Well, but also... You can't, that's, that's not a repeatable process. No, no, no. The, also, like, the main thing is the Montreal Canadiens still made an embarrassment of picks. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, you you can't do that when you're this asset poor, right? Like, the well, that's what I mean. You have one chance to acquire that player, and it's Bo Horvat. That's it. They traded how many picks did they trade for um, Doc? First and second? A first and a third. First and a third. Thirteenth overall in a third round pick. And they still made six picks in the first three rounds. They still made six. Like, they still made a pick per round. You know, like this is what I'm talking about. You build up your war chest. And then those options open up for you. You can't do that. You can't do that when you're as asset poor as the Canucks are. When you have so little of value to move. And and you don't even have your full coterie of draft picks. The Montreal Canadiens have two potential lottery picks again this year. Three fourth rounders and two fifths. Like this is how it starts. You load up on futures. And then options open up for you to improve with the dock type deals. Mm-hmm. If you're rushing to the dock type deal, you're skipping eight million steps. Like you're literally skipping all the hard work, which would be very Canucks, like go right to the instant gratification payoff. But like there's work to be done to set up the dock deal to where it makes sense. Yeah, that's work that this franchise has to begin first. And the Horvat deal, for me anyway, isn't the place to do it. The Horvat deal is your is your time, like, realistically, honestly, you, you, you don't want the late first? Try to get the Sherrod pick. Mm. Try to, you know what I mean? Like, look at the Florida Panthers. No one would have bet on that pick no. being in the lottery. The Florida Panthers didn't even well, protect it. And, that, and again, people will say, well, the only, like, no matter what, the first round pick you get for Bo Horvat will be in the 20s, not if it's a 2024 pick. And I understand that's not compatible with the timeline that they've laid out, but make a bet on oh, a sorry. team to fall back next Reality's year. not compatible with the timeline they've laid out. That's no reason not to comment on the... Anal- uh, anyway. I think you still want a 2023 late. But if you can get a 2024, like if there's teams that are being cavalier about it, there's still a lot of talent in that draft class. And heck, if you can still get a lottery pick, there's still likely to be a Vancouver-born player and giant Canucks fan at the very apex of that that pick. I mean, can you imagine Montreal sitting laughing? They could have two lottery picks. Outrageous. Yeah, it's... (laughs) And they, and they traded the 13th overall last year. Like, they have a lot well, of draft it, capital to work with. And, and I mean, I didn't even like that trade for them, but 
at the time. I didn't love that trade for them, but it looks brilliant now. You it know? looks good. And and but again, you have to position yourself to make those deals. You can't yeah. And you again, can't my, rush it. My point is, even in the best case scenario, the Kirby Doc deal is not repeatable for the Canucks because, like, you're not getting that player for Connor Garland. You're not getting that player for Brock Besser. Right? Go down the list of the other assets they're willing to move. None of them are equal to the 13th overall pick, which was no. used to acquire Kirby Doc. So nope. th- that can't be the class of players you're looking to acquire because you only have one means to do it, and it's with a Bo Horvat trade. Good research. I think you're right. <laughs> no, nicely done. I enjoyed that. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, you've illustrated nicely. Yeah, and I, I, you, I think it's like, fair really... because it's not that it's you can't get good players no, in that mold. There are good players out there. It's just a really narrow. It's a relatively narrow field. It's an incredibly narrow field. It's an incredibly narrow path. And then when you look at the realist, like you know, even on that list of centers, like the Golden Knights wouldn't do what? I mean, I guess they would if Horvat was coming back. They would. Yeah. But, but again, but but uh, how much upside is there? But would the Kings do Lazat considering yes. the cap considerations? Yes. If he was a secondary piece, they might push back on that. They're not like flush with cap space. Yeah. He's one point six for the next two years, and he's a better defensive player today than Bo Horvat is. I, look, I still think they do it because they need goal scoring so desperately. Yeah. But I'm just saying, like. As a secondary piece, they're probably like, oh, well, you can't do the piece you really want plus Lazat. I don't know about that. They'd, 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 they'd probably hold out on that. All right. We're going to be back tomorrow. Canucks game day. They're back home against the Tampa Bay Lightning. Uh, keep it locked right here on Sportsnet 650.